Welcome to Rymdpodden, where we examine all the mysteries across the universe. Today, you will hear the second part of our interview with Ross Church. But first, a conversation between me and my dear co-host, Katrina. In our interview with uh, Professor Davies, we talked a bit about detecting exoplanets. We talked quite a lot about it, actually. But detecting what's inside the atmospheres is very interesting because it could tell us a lot about the planet, right? Exactly. And we did mention that in the interview a little bit. But as for now, the research hasn't come very far in that aspect. But luckily, I just heard a lecture about chemical composition of exoplanets. And in London, they have been studying 30 planets, all Jupiters, either hot or warm and such, and see their chemical composition. They can't say completely what is common or what actually came out of it because the sample is very small. Uh, but they have been able to do it with Hubble, uh, looking at a narrow band of wavelengths and see if they can make out a bit of uh, the atmosphere con- what it contains uh, by using the transits uh, so that when the planet transits in front of the star, uh, they can look at the starlight that has come from the star through the planet and to the telescope. It has then been filtered through the plant atmosphere, meaning that if we can detect it and actually interpret it, we can see the chemical composition by subtracting the starlight. Yeah. So we only have the planet light. Okay, so when the light passes through the atmosphere uh, before, it does that. It has almost all wavelength. Exactly. It passes through the atmosphere and then in the atmosphere we have some different elements and each element oh that's my wavelength and yes oh i'll take that one okay. another exactly. one take that one so lines. so looking at what wavelengths are missing from the light we can figure out what elements was in the planet atmosphere exactly so when we the these scientists looked at the 30 or so really big planets that yes. you talked about earlier what uh, what were those planets made of primarily they had uh, found oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, they mentioned. Nitrogen, that's... Uh, like I we think... have, if you were to look at Earth, our atmosphere is 70% nitrogen, so that's one of the first things you would detect. Exactly, and nitrogen is uh, existent in planets. We have nitrogen in other planets in our solar system uh, in different amounts. Um so yes, that's the molecules they had found, although they could not say that they were necessarily in gas form. Okay. Um, and they, their, their data was not clear enough and it wasn't good enough to actually say how much uh, of each of these elements okay. existed. So if it's not in gas form, how do we detect it? Like, for example, if the, the light from the sun comes down on the surface of a planet mm. and bounces off that, will it still the surface absorb? Or maybe it's, it has to be liquid so it goes through the water and then goes up in some way? I think the surface will be just reflected. So I don't think it will interact and then be emitted out so okay. we would see it. Um, so how? I'm not how, sure. But why could it not be uh, they, they could not say. They have maybe just looked at a planet and they could only see that there were two or three 
molecules uh, in that study in that atmosphere because their band of study the the way the spectrum was so narrow so they could not see much of the absorption lines and they could mm. not say how much percentage uh, of that molecule that existed ah. in that so that's atmosphere. A, that's a limitation of the instrument that they were using exactly. to detect the light when the light comes to the scientist's instrument it's uh, depending on how you build it it will only absorb some of the wavelength not all of it because that's more or less impossible it's really hard to absorb everything exactly to find life on other planets which is the most interesting compounds to look at to say that oh those compounds that we saw can only be there we found life so scientists have been looking into this and of course it's extremely difficult to know because perhaps the life is not like here on earth exactly. the problem is we only know one kind of life in, and it's the kind of life we have here on earth life could be very different in a different place but so basically what the conclusion of the scientists is you can never know uh, what the stuff you see come from because it can be some kind of life we haven't seen before but if we do see atmosphere composition that's very similar to our own uh, we could conclude that that's very possible to life so basically what we're searching for is an exoplanet that's the same distance from this their sun that we are from our sun the same atmosphere composition and, and same size so we're searching for a second earth so this is really hard basically what we need to do is just go there and visit <laughs> say. or of course if we get the message of this extraterrestrial intelligence SETI search if they detect a radio transmission saying hey we're here what's up want to mm -hmm. play some basketball <laughs> then that, we, would then, that would be clear clear yeah there's so much or probably it's just some kid that is messing with the scientists somewhere. <laughs> a smart kid in that case yeah. um, no we will have to just Simply wait and see. Do we know what the black hole actually is? Because neutron star is a star core that has collapsed and contains almost only neutrons. But what are black holes? We can't see them, so how, how do we know? It's a good question. So what we know is that there's a solution to Einstein's equations of general relativity, which is an object basically so dense that light can't escape from it. The thing that we see is called an event horizon. So that's a surface inside which, if any light or any material passes inside it, it never comes back out again. And so the thing that we really see are these event horizons and light that passes close to them but doesn't fall inside gets bent, it suffers time dilation effects. So there's all sorts of, of weird effects go on around these event horizons which we can see by studying things like accretion disks in black hole X-ray binaries. What goes on inside the event horizon no information leaks out of the event horizon. So we don't know, really. In a very purist sense, we perhaps think it, it might not matter because it has no observable consequences for the rest of the universe. Of course, it's something people are interested in 
and work on trying to understand theoretically, but it's very hard to see how we could ever test what goes on inside an event horizon. Okay, and in stars, um, they're made of helium and hydrogen, a lot of heavier elements. So when they do a supernova and become a black hole, do you expect those elements to be ripped apart and just pushed together in the quarks that they're made of? Yeah, again, we don't really know. So yeah. the, the the challenge is that we don't have a theory that unifies the behaviour of particle physics, the behaviour of fundamental particles in very strong gravitational fields. That's a, a challenge in fundamental physics, which we have yet to find a satisfactory solution to. I mean, the formation of a black hole, we think, probably passes through a neutron star phase. So what happens is you will, in the collapse of the core of a star during a supernova explosion, you'll form a neutron star, but that neutron star will be too massive to support itself under its own gravitational force. So it will contract and ultimately become dense enough that it slips inside its own event horizon. But what happens to the material after that is very hard to say. Okay. Really. So if um, we start with a neutron star, so when the neutron star form, what happens with all the protons on all the other particles? Does they transform into neutrons or are they just scattered away? The protons which form around half of any of the nuclei of any heavy element capture electrons to transform into neutrons. And in fact, the outer layers of a neutron star consist of a mixture of neutrons and protons. So in the formation process, what happens then is that as this extremely hot neutron star is forming, it cycles between neutrons and protons with protons capturing electrons and then releasing electrons to convert back into neutrons again. And in the process, very large volumes of neutrinos are produced, and the neutron star is largely transparent to them, so they stream out through space. And in fact, they cool the neutron star as it forms, and in doing so, carry away most of the gravitational potential energy that's released in the collapse of the core of the neutron star. And we've detected these very large fluxes of neutrinos, again, that's another challenging detection to make because neutrinos have this nasty habit of going through anything without interacting with it, including any detector you try to build. But there is a very small cross-section for interaction with ordinary matter. And we saw that from the most recent, really nearby supernova, which was um, in 1987 in the Large Magellanic Cloud, which is a, a satellite galaxy of the Milky Way. We mentioned just briefly compact binaries. What are those? The expression is usually used for one of these binaries which has two neutron stars or a neutron star in a black hole or two black holes in. And so they're a field of study in their own right, really, because they're some of the more extreme objects in the universe. 
The fact that they form tells us something about the evolution of the lives of massive stars. And then if they have neutron stars, they produce these radio pulses that we can observe. And at the end of their lives, when they merge, they produce gravitational waves, which we can observe with LIGO and ultimately, potentially with LISA when it's built. Mm, we've also mentioned gamma ray bursts. That's very high energetic and interesting. You said that it could come from neutron stars merging, but could it come from something else? And what would that tell us? So gamma ray bursts come in two kinds. One that we now are pretty confident is in fact the merging of pairs of neutron stars. And they are the short ones, as they're called. So they're classified short and long, depending on how long the gamma ray signal lasts for. And what we saw after the LIGO detection of the merging neutron stars was a short gamma ray burst. But we also see long gamma ray bursts, and those are associated observationally with regions of galaxies, because we've never seen one from our own galaxy. We see them from other galaxies, and we see that they come from regions that are rich in young massive stars. So we think what we're seeing is the formation of a black hole at the end of the life of an extremely massive star, but also an extremely massive star that's rotating very rapidly. And because it's rotating very rapidly as its core collapses once it's reached a mass too massive to support itself with gravity, the material in the outer layers of the core can't fall directly in because of the rotation, it has too much angular momentum. So very transiently it forms an accretion disk. So this is like an X-ray binary, but it's like a crazy over-the-top X-ray binary. Because instead of having just a tiny fraction of a stellar mass in that disk at any one time, you have many solar masses of material falling into this newly formed black hole. So there's an extremely high accretion rate, it's extremely luminous, and that energy then drives the production of a jet of relativistic plasma which produces these gamma rays. And we see the gamma rays if we're looking basically along that jet right into the core of this massive star as it collapses. I'd like to go back to planetary systems a little bit. We talked with your colleague earlier about how to detect different exoplanets. I don't know if this is your field, but and the most common method is uh, the transit method, right? However, this only works right if the disk of the system you're uh, observing is aligned with uh, with Earth. If it's yeah. shifted, you cannot see the planets. They will never pass in front of the their sun uh, from our perspective. We have detected a lot of planets this way, but how many solar systems can we never detect with this method? And uh, is there any better method to detect them? So this is a bit away from things I do, but if we think about the solar system, the planets lie in a single plane in the sky, which we call the ecliptic. You could only see the solar system as an alien attempting to detect it if you were looking directly along the plane of the ecliptic. However, there's another effect that the planets have on the, on the central star, 
and that is that the gravitational force causes, causes the star to move. So as the Earth orbits the Sun, what actually happens is that both the Earth and the Sun orbit the common centre of mass. So the common centre of mass of the Earth-Sun system is well inside the Sun, because the Earth is much lower mass than the Sun is, but it still gives the Sun a slight wobble as the Earth goes around it. And what that means, if you're looking at the light from a star like the Sun, is you see the star move back and forth, and that causes a Doppler shift in the light that we can observe. So that's the other means of detecting planetary systems. It's quite challenging to measure those Doppler shifts because they're very small for Earth-like planets, but it is complementary to transits. And if you see both these radial velocity variations, as they're called, and transits from the same planet, then you can learn a lot more about it. You can, you can work out its mass, you can work out its orbit. Yeah. And there is a link here to what we were talking about earlier, because if instead of having a planet, what you have is another star, so you have a binary star system, then you can use the same tools to understand that binary star system. So from the radial velocity variations on one of the star, you can learn about what the ratio between the masses of the two stars and the binary is, about how far away they are, about their orientation on the sky. If, again, you're looking at that binary and you're lined up with the um, plane of its orbit, then you see, rather than transits, they're called eclipses, but it's the same thing. It's when one star passes in front of the other and blocks out the light coming from it. And these eclipsing binaries, as they're called, are one of the best ways to study binaries with two normal luminous stars. When you have these planets orbiting the stars, they still move back and forth, right? To create the Doppler shift. Yeah. But if the solar system that we're looking at are a bit inclined, that would change the Doppler shift. But uh, maybe we do not know about the inclination of the solar system. How do we handle it? So this is... If you just see the Doppler shift, then you can't indeed measure the inclination. The only thing you know is that the system isn't face-on, because then you wouldn't see the Doppler shift at all. So you know it must be somewhat inclined with respect to the plane of the sky. The great thing about eclipses is that if you see them, it means you know that you're looking at the system edge-on, um, because otherwise it wouldn't be lined up. So that's why the combination of the eclipse method or the transit method for planets with radial velocities is such a powerful technique for understanding and, and measuring the properties of these planetary systems or binary star systems. So this radial velocity is not as good if you don't do the transit method as well. And uh, if it's edge-on, you can't use it, right? If, yeah, so if it's face-on, you can't then neither method works, yes. in fact. If you're looking at your planetary system edge-on, then that's when the radial velocities have the largest amplitude. Okay. So there is another um, third method which will work for some planetary systems, 
and that's called astrometry. And it comes from measuring the position of the star, not its velocity this time, but position. And so, again, if you have a star and a planet, the planet and star both orbit around their common centre of mass. So what that means is that the star traces out a tiny ellipse on the sky, corresponding to the much larger ellipse traced out by the planet. And if you can measure the position of the star extremely accurately, you can plot that ellipse and hence work out what the planet's doing. So measuring very accurately the positions of stars is something we're interested in doing for other reasons, principally to work out how far away they are. And there's a European Space Agency-funded satellite called Gaia, which is doing this as we speak, measuring with exquisite accuracy the positions of around a billion stars in our galaxy. And astronomers in Lund are very involved in the process of going from the positions that Gaia observes to measuring the distances to stars, and in the very final release, once we have all of the data from Gaia, we will be able to find planets around a small fraction of the stars it sees, but probably the expectations are that, that we'll find 10 or 20,000 planets that way. And this astrometry method is best, actually, for face-on planets. It's the other way around. Because if you're looking at the planetary system face-on on the sky, you see the largest amplitude of ellipse. So what can we say about the inclination of planets in our galaxy? Are all solar systems generally the same inclination? They're all aligned, or is it scattered? If we start by thinking about the solar system, it's fairly flat. That is, the planets in the solar system lie within a disk that's a few degrees thick. And that would be good, again, for the hypothetical alien civilization trying to detect the solar system by the transit method, because if they were well lined up, they would have a good chance of seeing a large fraction of the planets. In terms of other planetary systems, planetary systems that we see in transit, one of the results from the Kepler satellite, which is in the NASA satellite looking for the transits of planets, is that it saw very many multiple planet systems where we see, instead of a transit of just one planet, two, three, four, five, six, even seven planets in the same planetary system all transiting. And what that means is that that planetary system must have a disk that's extremely flat, so has a, an angular spread sufficiently small to allow us to see all of those planets transit. So we did some work here in the department with an earlier version of the Kepler data, we came up with a statistical argument as to how thick those disks should be based on the ratios of planetary systems with different numbers of transits that we observe. And our conclusion is that the typical Kepler-observed planetary system has a disk of planets that's only two or three degrees in thickness. And that's relatively similar to what we see in the solar system, and it suggests that those planets formed from a thin protoplanetary disk and have not been messed up very much ever since they formed. In that sense, they're rather like the solar system in that they're still 
relatively flat, relatively pristine, relatively untroubled by internal instability or by encounters with other stars. Disks of the, all the different solar systems, would you say they are aligned with a galaxy disk? So what we assume generally is that they're not. The orientations of the disks of the different planetary systems are randomly distributed on the sky. And that, again, fits with the numbers that we see in the Kepler data. So we know that at least some of them are aligned with us. But if we assume that they're aligned simply randomly on the sky, that any direction is as common as any other, then when you work through the numbers, you come to the conclusion that the average sun-like star has a planetary system with a few planets in probably a bit more massive than the Earth. And that's the sort of numbers that you would expect if planet formation is a fairly common process that happens around most stars. And there's no particular reason why it shouldn't be. So that's a, a picture that fits very well. So then you might ask the question, why aren't these stars aligned with the disk of the galaxy? The galaxy has a lot of angular momentum. So why don't the stars all form aligned? And the answer to that is turbulence. So turbulence is the random motion of gas inside a cloud. And in this case, the relevant cloud is the one that the stars formed from. So we think that stars in general form from what are called giant molecular clouds. These are clouds of gas that's cold enough that they form in the molecules not unlike the molecules that are common on Earth, so in particular molecular hydrogen. These clouds, when we study them, we find that they're highly turbulent. That is, that the gas inside them is mixed and churned and is moving in seemingly random directions. So although one of these clouds might be moving very much in the plane of the galaxy and might be associated with some large-scale feature in the galaxy, Inside, it's a complete mess. So if you take a little box of that cloud, it doesn't know anything about the large-scale structure of the galaxy. And that reassures us that our assumption that when the stars form out of that gas, they don't know which way the galaxy is facing is a reasonable one. Can we say something about directions that the moons in our own solar systems is orbiting? Or are they also scattered in the same way? Because... You could say the solar system is made from a protoplanetary disk. So now moons are getting well outside my um, scientific <laughs> um, <laughs> scope. But we think that probably actually the moons of the solar system are not all formed in the same way. So they probably have rather different histories. With the Earth's moon, the most likely scenario is that it was formed by a lump of material left over from planet formation crashing into the Earth and knocking out a cloud of material that then coalesced into a moon. And it's not particularly well aligned with the orbit of the rest of the solar system. It's inclined by some number of degrees. I don't remember the exact number. Probably the moons around the more massive planets like Jupiter and Saturn formed like miniature planetary systems from disks of material that coalesced. One thing we do know is that you 
you don't have moons that have orbits that are really near perpendicular to the orbits of the planets around the sun. And the reason we, you don't expect that is that it was shown by a, a Japanese astronomer called Kozai, and separately, but at the same time, by a Russian astronomer named Lidov, that that sort of configuration is unstable. So if you have a very a, a flat planetary system and then a very highly inclined moon, what happens is that the gravitational torque from the planetary system bends the orbit of the moon down. And as it's bent down, it becomes extremely eccentric, which would cause it to crash into the planet ultimately. So for any stable system, and this applies not only to planet-moon systems, but also, for example, to binary star systems where one of the stars has planets around it, and to comets in the solar system, and to objects in the Oort cloud, and so on and so forth. There's a limit to how inclined they can be, because if they're very inclined, you get these kozai lidov cycles, as they're called, which push the orbits into very high eccentricities. And very eccentric orbits tend to lead to some sort of unstable scattering or merger effect. There have been many interesting parts here in the interview. In a summary, what is the biggest focus in the study of gravitational waves, binary systems that is now and in the nearest future? So in the very near future, I would say there are perhaps three exciting things. The first exciting thing is the double neutron star merger that we saw in 2017. That gives us a wealth of physical information, doorway into understanding the physics of gamma, short duration gamma ray bursts in general. So it's by far the best observed, the best understood short duration gamma ray bursts, and we want to mine that treasure trove of data to, to learn more about the physics of these systems. So the second exciting thing is if we see more of these, because when you've got one object, you don't ever really know whether it was just a bit weird or not. But if you see more of them, then you can learn something about the sample. You can understand what different sorts of systems give you, whether if you look at it from a different direction, it looks different, all those sorts of questions. Then the third thing is understanding the massive black hole binaries. Where do they come from? So the big controversy in the community at the moment is from the field people who think that they form from isolated binaries with two massive stars in that interact with one another, that exchange matter, that are perhaps live all their lives sufficiently close that the tides from the one star completely mixes up the other star during its entire lifetime. So that's one picture for forming these things. The other picture says that that's a very difficult process, and perhaps you form these black holes more independently inside clusters of stars, and then if you have a binary within the cluster, you exchange these black holes into it, and you grind that binary down by scattering off other stars until it becomes close enough to merge. So there are big teams of people working on both of these processes at the moment, trying to understand the physics better, trying to fit these things to observations, and trying to really say which of these two pathways, these two channels for making these exotic black hole binaries, which of them dominates. And that's work, again, that we're very involved with here in the department. So then in the longer term, 
the population of systems that we see using LIGO and Virgo is going to increase. But then also in the further distance, we will have Lisa. Lisa will launch probably in the early 2030s, so there's a bit of a wait. But once it does launch, it will let us see a whole different class of gravitational wave events. So one amazing thing would be if we can see double black hole binaries before they merge. So we see the chirpy event when they merge in LIGO, but LISA is sensitive to them perhaps 10 years previously when they're somewhat wider and so give us lower frequency gravitational waves. And if that's the case, we'll be able to pin down their positions. We'll know in advance when they're going to merge so we can really hone in on that and see if there is anything to be seen at all. And it'll also find lots of white dwarf binaries within our galaxy. We will probably see the merging of supermassive black holes, which are something we've not talked about, in distant galaxies, which tell us about how galaxies have evolved across cosmic time, about how they've merged, about when they grow their, their massive black holes. So there's, there's another whole wealth of exciting science to be done with gravitational waves in the future once once we have Lisa. It has been wonderful and very exciting things in black holes and merging neutron stars and stars, the cool stuff, so to say. But time is running out and we thought that we could maybe take the finishing questions. Yeah, I have a little bit more maybe fun question. Mm -hmm. uh, so we talked about a lot of different uh, objects in the universe today. What would you say is your favorite object? <laughs> <laughs> My favourite objects. I have a great fondness for binary stars, I have to say. Mm. Particularly, actually, these massive binary stars, they're very exciting, they do lots of fun things. But actually, the lower mass binary stars are also very interesting. And because they're more common and they're longer lived, we can actually study the individual systems in more detail. We can plot their histories inside the galaxy. So I suppose my favourite systems are the binaries with stars in around the mass of the sun or a few times the mass of the sun and studying where they form, how they evolve. Uh, where would you uh, like to be found on the internet? If you have any social media or somewhere you would like to redirect people? So if you're interested in more about the, the work we've talked about, you can find the things I do on my webpage. I'm Ross Church. You can search for my name and I have a, a webpage here in the department which has a bit more of a description of what I do and then links to some of the papers I've written if you want to delve into that. Yeah, and we will put the link to that in our show notes as well so Thanks. everybody can find it. And do you have anything else you want to plug? Um... <laughs> Actually, one other place you can find me, and this is a different aspect to some of the work that I do, is if you look on the YouTube account of the Pufendorf Institute, which is an interdisciplinary research institute in Lund, though you can find links to videos of me talking about how we can use machine learning to study the spectra of stars in our galaxy, which... It's a, a complex link, but actually this is one of big surveys of the spectra of very many stars is one way in which we can find these binaries and study their properties. That sounds really interesting. I think that's what I'm going to do when I come home and <laughs> look at that. 
Last question. We usually say this and it's a fun question. If it would be possible, where in the solar system or any more exotic places would you like to visit if it was possible? Or live even? Uh, well, to live, that one's easy because <laughs> Lund is obviously the best place. Um, but it, to visit, well, I mean, the solar system is actually quite an inhospitable place once you get away from the Earth's magnetic field, which shields us from all the unpleasant high-energy radiation coming from the sun. But one very interesting thing in recent years has been the ESA's first visit to a comet, where they managed to put a satellite in orbit around a comet and even land a lander on it, Comet, it turns out, are really interesting, complicated places with um, rocky mountains and valleys and jets of complicated organic chemicals coming out of them. And I think if it were possible, a, a holiday on a comet would be perhaps a little bit like visiting Iceland, but more extreme. <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much you for very inviting much. me. You can find more episodes of our podcast at astronomiskungdum.se slash rymdpodden or just try to google rymdpodden, hopefully you find it. Or you can find our episodes wherever you find your episodes on Stitcher or on iTunes. Stay tuned and talk to you next time.